Today on the Bible Archives, we are going to look at a lot of the different names for Eucharist. And in, in looking at the various names, we're actually looking at various ways to engage with Eucharist. So there's no correct name. We're using Eucharist as sort of a placeholder to cover the whole thing. Um, but also the names aren't synonyms, right? Each each different uh, name for, for this sacrament is offering a specific angle that can help shape how we interact with the meal. So we kind of need all of them. And at the same time, um, we, we need to be able to tell what their differences are so that we can have a further appreciation for the meal. So we've looked at Eucharist as sacrament, and there's capital S sacrament, this instituted and ordained ritual that helps inspire who we are, how we live, uh, what we do as communities, but mostly to foster a sacramentality within within the world. And specifically, when the Eucharist is Eucharist, it covers so much. And, and, and it interacts, yes, with, with bits of creation, right? It is a meal made up of creation, but it then transforms every component of creation. And it involves all of these different, all of these different things. So we can't just see it as one singular way. So that's what we want to do today. So we're going to start with Eucharist as the great Thanksgiving. Now, this one's interesting because in most of the spaces I've been around where people are taking communion, it's very sad. Like everybody is like head bowed, kind of looking around like I'm a terrible person. The great Thanksgiving in contrast, is meant to be this huge celebration. Like, imagine taking Eucharist where people are, like, at a raucous party. That's kind of what it's meant, it's what it's meant to do. Wouldn't that have been the way it was in the first century? I mean, when you look at the book of Acts, you see them like they're having a party almost. It's this huge bunch of people. They're bringing their goods. They're sharing food. And it talks about them, you know, being something that the, all the people saw as good. Well, and if if we're going to take the interpretation that uh, communion is connected to Passover, mm-hmm. if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, are there some confessional parts? Yes. But it's a party. It's celebrating. Right. Um, and I, I just think it's interesting because th- this, is, this is one of the components that I have almost never seen. People have been like oriented that when communion starts, you, you better get real quiet real quick. Even though that a lot of the, the communion liturgy involves singing, involves different forms of praise, things like that. I wonder if it's because people kind of equate the idea of something being sacred like that with being solemn, and they don't understand that, that joy and music and dancing and all those things can be part of something being sacred as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, we, if we're saying that communion in Eucharist, it's only about your forgiveness for that week, well then, yeah, you're going to have a pretty somber sure. attitude going in. Mm-hmm. So what this does is it reframes it. So the question is, what are you celebrating, right? Yeah. And uh, well, what is what is worth noting is that the great Thanksgiving 
usually is the title for the liturgy that sets uh, sets communion. And this is a part of a lot of different traditions. I want to say most mainline traditions call it the Great Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, and so I find it interesting that like that's the title, and yet we still don't usually do that. Mm-hmm. So you're you're entering into a great act of thankfulness. So what are you thankful for? What are you celebrating? And um, I think there's two things. The first one is that you're celebrating the work of God. All right, so put this back in the sacrament and all of that. We're saying God's initiated this. The transcendent has become imminent and the, the interaction of divine and human mystery is because of uh, something that the divine did. You know, so we're celebrating that. Okay. We're recognizing um, that we didn't create ourselves. We didn't create us. We are finite, uh, contingent human beings. Yeah. So that's not stuff that you're usually going to say within the liturgy, but that's what you're saying when, when you do this. Um, but what is the work of God that's being celebrated? And if you look through the liturgy of a common great thanksgiving, it's usually covering the same things. Creation, redemption, you're celebrating the work of the church in the world. You're celebrating the existence of what's usually called uh, God's kingdom or, you know, that that teleological, eschatological vision, um, the renewal of creation, you're celebrating that all of those things uh, are are occurring and are continuing to occur. Okay. Now, so the first thing that this does is this sort of puts you in your proper place. Yeah, right. right? So when, when people talk about Eucharist as a form of worship, it is. There's uh, an element of praise here. There is a, a, an element of ethical formation, which I think is important to worship. Uh, there's a way of physically marking uh, your experience in the world uh, and of your experience of God. Um, but you're also recognizing your limitedness within the world mm-hmm. and therefore being grateful for the world doesn't depend on you. Yeah, thank goodness. Right? Right. Uh, and your vision for the world is not how things are happening. And we're all very <laughs> thankful for that, right? Sure. So, so that's, you know, and, and the Catholics got this right. The Eucharist is the height of their worship service. Absolutely. Right. It should be. Um, and there's some critiques to offer with worship there as well. But also what, what we can see is that in the, in the actual meal, it captures the essence of Jesus's life and work and death and resurrection and the continuation of, of that work. Right? So we are responding to the gift of life. We're responding to the gift of God's presence. And we're responding to the gift of what God is still doing currently in the world. And we're, we're sort of all at once, like encountering and celebrating what the world's becoming. So we get to taste it a little bit, literally, I sure. guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also acknowledging it generally. And that's, that's seriously like the primary way that Eucharist is seen. It's, it's the hope of the world's story and what it can be. God is putting the world back together. And this has a couple interesting components. Now, when we've talked about this before, we actually used the, uh, it's 
typically called the parable of the prodigal son. Sure. If if we ever go through the book of Luke, I hope we will uh, properly deconstruct why that might not be the best title. Um, because it's actually the parable of a man and his two sons. And what happens in the parable is the one son, you know, goes gone, asks for the inheritance early, um, which was basically like saying, I wish, I wish you were dead, dad. Um, and then goes and he blows it all and it doesn't go well. Then he comes home. And when the son comes home, the father doesn't just stand there and kind of have an I told you so attitude. The father runs out to meet the son, which is a beautiful picture. Amazing grace. The hymn is built on this picture. It's wonderful. Um, and then the father gives the son uh, his signet ring and clothes. And then they throw a big party. Now, one of the things that's missed about this parable, which I, I hopefully I just added a lot of things that are typically missed. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's missed is what, how do we know they're throwing a party? There's a detail in there that... Well, it says that the older son is in the field and he hears the music and the dancing and he calls a servant and asks him what's going on. So it sure sounds like a party is going on. And the servant replies, your brother has come and yeah. your father has killed the fatted calf. Oh, okay, yeah. So what's happening here? It's a Levitical offering. Oh. And we, okay. we don't necessarily put that together, but there is a an offering that is prescribed in Leviticus for when you are grateful for something. Sure. And you would sacrifice an animal, not for some like weird atonement thing. You mm-hmm. sacrifice the animal so that you name that it's God's, but then you go and you take that and you share it with your communities to celebrate what God has done. So the the parable of the man and the two sons is kind of about a celebration. Uh, it's a great Thanksgiving. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I, there's something else going on uh, w- with with this parable, too. But you get to it, it's it's a part of our tradition that when something happens, you acknowledge, you see good things occurring in the world. You acknowledge your limitedness. Um, you you acknowledge a, a, a certain gift of life. The response is gratefulness and celebration, which is an act of worship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, all, all all that kind of ties together, and that's what's going on with with communion. Is the same response of the father in that parable is kind of what we do. We're celebrating this, even in the midst of all the ways we've messed it up even in the midst of the world's not always doing very well, we're still celebrating that we have breath, uh, that the story's not over, um, that the story's not dependent on us, right? Mm -hmm. We will live and we will die and the story will continue. And we're acknowledging and celebrating all, all of these things. Well, this is where the parable starts, but it's not really where it ends. It seems like there is kind of an arc then towards that older brother that a lot of times we stop with the younger brother. But what does that older brother have to do with the parable, and how does he fit in then to the story? Well, the the parable comes at a climax of a series of interactions and teachings, right? So okay. you can go back. What happens before this? 
Okay, and yeah. The, Jesus has the uh, parable of the um, the three coin or the coins and the lost sheep. But even before that, he tells a story about a banquet and how a man had invited all his friends to a banquet, and everybody was coming up with a good excuse and maybe not a good excuse about why they couldn't come. Sometimes their excuses were rather lame, like um, I just bought some cows and I need to go look at them. Well, wouldn't you look at those before you bought them? So then the man who throws the banquet gets angry and he says to his servants, just go out and find anybody who you can invite. And so he invites all the people, all the lame, the halt, the blind, all these different people are invited to the feast. These are the people you would not expect to find there. And this is all happening within these interactions with Jesus and Israel's leaders. And, and I'll, I'll, you'll always hear me refrain from calling them the religious leaders because that, that's not a dichotomy that's present in that culture. That's right. He had been at a banquet, a literal banquet, at a Pharisee's house, and he was pointing out where people were sitting and saying, yeah. making a point about how where you sit depends on how honored you are. And mm-hmm. then he starts to give this parable of the banquet. So what you have is... The Pharisees, these leaders of Israel, they're not happy with Jesus. And this conflict ensues, and Jesus begins to indict them and say that they're the problem. And that the very thing that they're proclaiming thereafter, they're in the way of. And then he gives these three parables. um, The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost brother. And... You know, I've heard people interpret the lost sheep in a variety of ways. We'll get there eventually when we get to Luke. But I, I think that's basically going, you're terrible shepherds. Exactly. Right? It's what, what, you shouldn't have lost the sheep. We, we go like, oh, it's the God... The, the the God character is the shepherd who goes and finds the one. Okay, you can, you can definitely like midrash that story, sure. But the emphasis seems to be that it, Israel's leaders are the shepherd and they are losing sheep. They're terrible shepherds. And then you get the lost coin, which is like poor material management. Why are you losing your coins? And we make it like God searches for us. But it never says that the God character is the shepherd or the person looking for the coin. This is true. And then we get this parable of these two brothers. And, and we want to go... Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Which it, it says your brother was once lost and is now found. Uh, the point seems to be about the older brother. Because the parable actually ends uh, ends with that. So in Luke 15, you, here, here's that's how it reads. Then he became angry. Uh, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat. Also a reference to a Levitical offering. So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The parable's going to end like the scene of a movie where the father and the older son are standing outside of the party and the father goes in to celebrate after having this conversation and the older brother 
we never find out what he does. It's like you pull back and you can see him standing there and then it just fades. And what this kind of does in the context of these interactions is Jesus seems to be um, making the audience the character and going, so what will you do? You have to finish the story. Are you going to accept this grace or are you going to be indignant towards it? Mm-hmm. Because that's been the problem so far. If, if the great banquet is this invitation that all of creation is going to be renewed and you're standing there and you have something to lose if that happens, you're probably not going to want it to happen. And you wonder then which side are they on? Are they on the side of the Roman kind of empire system, or are they on the side of what Jesus is talking about, that covenant that the Israelites have had all this time, that they were going to be the people who brought about that healing of the world? Right, and it goes back to Genesis 12 and Abraham, and the goal of the whole project of Israel is that the whole world will be blessed. Right, and they're kind of missing the point then. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus says this is what's happening, and they're not okay with it. So he tells this parable and says... How are you going to respond? Yeah. You're going to come in? Mm-hmm. You're you going to join the party? So what does this have to do with communion? That's the interesting question. If communion is the great Thanksgiving, one thing that we can see, if we're going to use Luke 14 and Luke 15 as an instance of Eucharist theology, you're celebrating all of this stuff of the work of God. But what also happens is you... If you're, if you're taking the perspective of uh, Christians are, are ebbed into the flow of Israel, you're celebrating not just on your behalf, yeah. but on behalf of history and the world. And I love this, this thought that comes from the ecumenical council that all of, the, all of the world, all of creation is present whenever communion happens. That doesn't mean like they're physically there in the room or wherever you are. But all of them are present because you are speaking on their behalf. You're celebrating on their behalf. Right. And you do have, you have creation is, is evident in the elements. Um, you represent all people of the world. And God's vision for the world is present through Messiah who is present in the elements. And so we are responding to the gift of life, the gift of God's presence, and the gift of what God is doing in the world. And that's for everything. Right, so this goes mm-hmm. back to Eucharist is, is about everything. Well, celebrating, giving a great Thanksgiving is for the sake of everything. Um, and there's this tradition in uh, Judaism that comes from the word Baruch, which is just blessing, and, and so you you bless God for everything, and that's a part of communion. You know, we're blessing God mm-hmm. for what God has done, mm-hmm. and that. You can make an infinite list of everything that should be on there, and that's constantly a part of the meal. Again, we don't do this because we're so wrapped up in my forgiveness and, and how terrible of a person I am, and good thing this somehow absolves me. And we're missing the fact that this is, we're blessing God in this moment. And this is something that, again, you should be doing at meals. Yeah. Right? Right. And so you do it at a sacramental meal, hopefully because it inspires you to do it at all of your meals and in all of the moments of your life. So you see how all of this is oh, sure. kind of connecting? It, the, what you experience at any form of Eucharist is supposed to connect with everyday life. And this part in particular, 
Thanksgiving should inform all of your life. If you can establish through a formal ritual a mentality of gratitude, does that not affect how you the filter through which you see all events and all people? Oh, absolutely. That that that's kind of where uh, I think I think this goes. So, you're so what are you celebrating in the Great Thanksgiving? Well, you're you're celebrating the work of God. You're also celebrating something else. And so let's go back to Luke 15 for a minute. Okay. Because there's a line in there that if I had to pick, if I had to pick a favorite text, be Exodus um, 8, the land stink. That's my favorite. (laughs) That's my favorite Bible verse. This one's up there though. All right. And after the, the older brother kind of airs his grievances, we read that the father said to him, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You're celebrating the work God is doing within everything and you are representing that. You're also celebrating that you get to be a part of it. So when you take Eucharist, the question before you is, can, can you trust that work? Do you actually, do you actually believe that this teleological and eschatological purpose is unfolding. And if so, do you, do you really understand what it means for you to also be a recipient of that gift along with everything else? This is what I think you're hinting at when you talk about the table, which Luke 14 is a great portrayal of. Mm-hmm. You're invited. And it's not your table. Yeah. But you are invited. Be grateful for that. And be grateful mm-hmm. that it's not your table. Because if it was, we would get Amy's version of the world. I wouldn't want that. And it would be a lesser version. <laughs> right, right, a limited version. And, I, well, I think that going beyond that, it's like to say we recognize how small we are. When we do this, we want to make sure that we don't imagine that we don't need our fellow human beings, that we don't need creation, that we don't need the things that God is doing. And yet we also have to remember that we ourselves bring those gifts to the table so that because other people need us. So there's this whole feeling of we wouldn't be able to fill that necessary space of giving what the world needs from us if we didn't have the gratefulness for that life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, you gotta, when you read the, the parable of the man and two sons, it's if you resonate with the younger brother wonderful that's great have you ever considered that you're the older one and so when you take eucharist you're being presented this work is happening we're celebrating that Mm -hmm. there's a party going on at the communion table whatever that looks like are you going to join it Mm-hmm. Are you going to limit yourself? Are you going to cut yourself off from that? Or are you going to take part in it and become yeah. part of it? Yeah. And, and so you're, every time the great Thanksgiving happens, how are you going to respond? Mm-hmm. The, this movement is happening. That's what we're celebrating. Can you accept that? Can you trust that? And can you allow yourself to be a part of it? Mm-hmm. We start with great Thanksgiving. Now let's move to another component, Eucharist as Lord's Supper. Um, And this is primarily a Western version of Eucharist. And by that, I mean like the Western church. And uh, sometimes you'll hear Eucharist called 
uh, memorial. And the word for that is anamnesis. And uh, the way that I would define anamnesis is remembrance that becomes alive in the present. Mm-hmm. And that therefore has an impact on all of life. So here's the problem with uh, the Lord's Supper one and the memorial one. Again, so often I have been in places where communion was happening and all they were doing was reflecting on this past moment of history. Yeah. That's not anamnesis. Um, And so we just unbelievably emphasize like Jesus died and wow, well, that's amazing. That's not remembering that becomes alive in the present. Okay, that's a very static portrayal of the past. This also led to an issue in uh, church history of people claiming that during communion they were re-sacrificing Jesus. So if it was the literal body and blood, they were mm-hmm. like re-killing Jesus every time. And that kind that of... Seems I mean, that's not what different. they believed was <laughs> happening, but it became part of the conversation. The goal of anamnesis and and portraying it as the lord's supper is to recall all of that but to actualize it in the present so you you want to you want to represent that moment and anticipate its continuance in this moment so we're in a present moment but it looks like a past moment in order to experience it as if we were there mm-hmm. i've i'd also kind of brings to mind the idea that you know we tend to look at time linearly and maybe that's not a divine centered way of looking at time that it can that, it's that a valuable those, critique. That those things can happen yeah. all in the same space yeah so yeah but you're you're right in the sense of like we we want to experience that past moment so the lord separate emphasizes that there was a moment this happened mm-hmm. and we want to join that but we also want to pull that here so that they're joining us here. Yes, yeah, so you're pulling your ancestors forward. Yeah. Into and this your is space what, of time. This is what the Jews do with Passover. If you if you ever had a uh, a Passover seder, they remember the Exodus narrative as if they were there. So their liturgy constantly says we when mm-hmm. we were in Egypt. We you weren't in Egypt. <laughs> right. right. Unless you'd like traveled there once over the past however many years you've been alive. But that's not what they mean. They're experiencing it as if they were there because they're still part of the same story. That's what we do with the Lord's Supper. We don't just remember this past event. Sure. We, we want to make it so that we're also part of that ongoing narrative mm-hmm. so we can find its reality now by recalling it. Now, one thing, one way that we can we can try to understand this is by thinking about somebody that you've lost, right? Somebody who's died in your life who was really important to you. And one of the best compliments that people can sometimes receive is they watch you live and they say, you remind me of whoever that person was. Yeah. What's happening in those moments? Or, or when you lose somebody who, who dies and you recollect their life, you don't just remember those past things. You do so in a way so that it inspires who you are now, so you can honor their life, mm-hmm. right? So when somebody says, you know, I want to I wanna take after my grandma's personality, 
or the way she was so generous. Those are ways to remember the past, to bring it into the future. So what we're doing in the Lord's Supper is it's a memorial of all God has done in the world. And this event that culminates that in you know what we call the Lord's Supper. But we're also anticipating that that's still going to continue. And how's it going to continue? Okay. Through us. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now, when uh, that, that's kind of the romantic version of all of that, there's some issues with the, the Lord's <laughs> Supper part. Always. Because it brings, what I was talking about with re-sacrificing Jesus, it brings up the issue of how is that experience, past moment, body and blood, mm-hmm. how is that present? Um. I'm going to try not to take a side on this. I want to emphasize we'll what I think. <laughs> I want to emphasize what I think is important about it. Sure. Okay. And the first thing that's important is that it's not a memory. I do think we have to see that it is a real presence. Now, I'm also a little bit weirded out when it's like my grandma is with me right now. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. things get really. Uh, Pagan, new agey. The veil is thin this time of year, Tyler. Yes. (laughs) It's close to Halloween. (laughs) Uh, But I think I know what they mean, even if they're making that a little bit more tactile than should be. They feel that person within themselves. Mm -hmm. I think that we've all lost someone and experienced that when something comes out of our mouth and we're like, wow, that sounded like something my mother would say, Mm. Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It's like, rather than meaning, is this some ghost that's floating over my head protecting me? Yeah. Well, every time I do a funeral, one of the lines I like to use is, you should leave here, this this person who who you're mourning, their breath is gone. Their, Their flesh is not alive anymore. But there's one way that their gift of life will continue, and that's through you if you leave with a piece of that gift embedded in your flesh. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's not saying that grandma's like flying around you as you're walking, but there are moments like when you you have changed in the image of that person a little bit more, Mm -hmm. when you're inspired by the memory of that person, that's amnesis happening in real time yeah there is a real presence to it where this goes though is we want to have the debate is it transubstantiation or consubstantiation or is it a ubiquitous presence which is kind of a new one that's been brought up uh in in recent time but regardless of which one it is we are saying that it's not just a memory of jesus it's an ongoing reality that's continuing to inform what's happening. Right, okay. Right? So Christ's presence is important. Now, how does that happen? Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, ubiquitous presence, whatever people want to fall into. You're going to explain maybe what so, some of those are. Um, transubstantiation is typically the, uh, the Catholic view. So transubstantiation is where the elements of bread and wine are transformed into the literal 
body and the literal blood of Jesus. Well, that's a part of memorial, Lord's Supper, this anamnesis component. This is where it comes from, is because they're trying to take the past and put it into the present. And there's some critiques of this, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there's also, this is where a lot of Catholics would say Jesus Jesus commanded that we uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that's what we're doing. This is also why at Catholic churches, the uh, moment of Eucharist is this highly regarded feature where the priest is sort of entering into the Holy of Holies because they believe that's like literally Jesus. Yeah. Whether or not you agree with that, you should respect it. They are trying to give an elevated presence to something and that should impact you. It's like what we talked about with a, a sacred space. Um, consubstantiation was a critique of that, especially because it was like we were re-sacrificing Jesus. And consubstantiation is that Jesus's presence is with, con, with okay. the, the bread and the wine or the bread and the cup. Uh, the ubiquitous one is that Jesus's presence is everywhere, which means it's also in the sacrament elements okay right because mm-hmm. it's in every single thing so sure. it has to be there as well when i when people ask me about this i i, I honestly maybe this is bad i don't care <laughs> which one you're gonna go with um whichever one you decide it's gonna have some serious implications that you you better respect but uh, there's actually a catholic theologian whose quote on this is kind of what i go with um, he says, don't, this is Nathan Mitchell, by the way, don't get caught up in the how. The object of communion is something, but the presence is someone. Jesus is at the table with us, not on the table. And so when we are uh, in Eucharist and we are doing it as Lord's Supper and we're representing the past to implicate the present and who we are now, we become united with Christ's body and all who currently partake in it and all who have. It puts us in that great tradition uh, of which we are a part. Now, this also has another implication um, because if you're going to do the Lord's Supper, right, this remembering, this representing you have to include the whole story, not just Jesus's death. Right. Right. So when you're calling forth uh, the, this this Lord's Supper moment, you're and you actualize it. You're calling forth every component that finds culmination in the meal. So Jesus's entire life, teachings, interactions in continuation after the death with the resurrection in the church, you should be including all of that in what you're remembering. And I think that's something that gets left out uh, often. And so uh, why do we remember? Why do we have the memorial, the Lord's Supper? We remember so that we can share in it and continue it. So there's a responsibility there. Um, and and I, think, I think to emphasize something with that, there's something about realizing that you are but one speck in the story. Oh, yeah. Like, everything hasn't led to you. 
(laughs) But it's important for you to place yourself within the narrative so that the narrative can continue after you're gone. Mm -hmm. There's a a quote from someone called Rabbi Tarfan. He says, do not be arrogant. Do not think that you alone can finish the job. Trust in your children and generations yet unborn to take up the task. Know that you are part of the living chain of people who have dreamed, worked for a better world, and carried on this mission for 4,000 years in an unbroken covenant. We place ourselves in the narrative. That's why we remember. Mm -hmm. But then how do we actualize this? And we actualize it by doing not just the part that is Jesus' death, but the whole story. So this brings up that line, do this in remembrance of me. Right. And there's debate on where this comes from, right? So Paul includes it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, The writer of the Gospel of Luke includes it in uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I think it's a valuable thing. And uh, you'll see this like on the altar Sure, uh, like yeah. the wooden altar and churches do this in remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. And I've always, I've always got caught up in like, do what? Because often it's just taken as, uh, you know, consume the elements in remembrance of me. Sure. And you sit there and you remember Jesus and you eat this mm-hmm. thing and that's it. And then you go home. But particularly in first Corinthians, when he, when Paul includes do this, mm-hmm. you know, this is a reference to something that's already been stated. Yeah, this right? is already a tradition. So you have to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. So if he says, do this, uh, he Paul could have said, do this meal in remembrance of Jesus. Instead, it's do this in remembrance of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, what is this? And if we're going to actually do the Lord's Supper, we're going to recall the past, so that we can actualize it in the present. It is a process of replicating, learning from experiencing and replicating all of the parts that led to that moment for Jesus in memory of Jesus, in honor of Jesus. The same way that uh, we would honor somebody's life by being changed by them and continuing their gift in the world by making it a part of our lives. That's what we're doing. And if we limit that to just a piece of liturgy and a ritual and say, so, okay, I did, I took the, ate the bread and I drank from the cup. So I did this in remembrance of Jesus. I think, I think we're, we're missing something with that. Well, and then Paul even says, continue to eat this cup and drink, eat this bread and drink this cup until the Lord comes. And so while I don't want to get into the whole eschatological ending of all that, he's definitely bringing forth this thing from the past into that present that he was in and then putting it into the future. So he talks about it in that way. Yeah. So the crux of the Lord's Supper becomes not just recalling a past thing and, and even not just placing ourselves in the story, but continuing the story. And I think when we connect this, do this in remembrance of me, continue to partake in this ritual, it's not just continue to do the ritual, but continue to enact what the story started. And so when we remember Jesus instituting this, this what I would call a renewed uh, version of Passover, when we, when we remember that, we're also re- dash membering we're we're 
putting the membership of the body and the blood back together in the world to be that body and that blood. I think that's that's where the emphasis of of Lord's Supper should go. It's it's not just like remember that night where Jesus took the bread and took the cup and broke it and that's part of it. But again, just like sacraments, we do that, we we recall the night so that we can continue the story. And so I like bringing up like what was the do this? And and I love this uh this articulation of it. If we were to consider that it's not just the elements, like taking the elements, if it's the this referring to Jesus's entire way of life, that we are supposed to continue by taking the elements and saying we are now that that uh, experience of the world, we're now that body and we're now that blood. Just just consider you know what this would mean. He is born to teenage parents under questionable circumstances. He is born in the straw of a stable and placed in a feeding trough. His family thinks he is crazy. He gives sermons and the people try to kill him. He identifies with the outcasts, the not good enough, the unclean, the poor, the impure. He touches people with infectious skin diseases. He raises the dead. Questionable women place their hands on him. He confronts the powerful and strong and he practices nonviolence. He becomes the least in the eyes of the world. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse, weeping and broken and humble. And then he dies naked bleeding, thirsty, alone. We could say that God gives life to the world through the breaking of Jesus's body and the pouring out of Jesus's blood. That's what we are remembering. That's the memorial of the Lord's Supper. But we could also say that God continues to give life to the world through Jesus's body and Jesus's blood, which is us. In the role of anamnesis, is that we take on the responsibility to enter that narrative so that we continue it, the whole narrative. Not just the death, not just recalling the death, the whole narrative. And if Christ's presence is with us at the table when we do, if we bring that narrative into our present moments when we do Eucharist through the Lord's Supper, we make it more likely that we will continue to be that body and that blood. And I think that's, if if if, if nothing else, that should be, absolutely emphasized whenever communion happens. So we have the Great Thanksgiving and we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, Next time we need to look at Eucharist as divine liturgy, Eucharist as communion, and Eucharist as mass. So those are our three other terms that are often used. So we'll, we'll continue to explore that. And again, the goal here is when we participate in this sacrament called Eucharist, what should its effect be? So hopefully we're starting to flesh that out. And then, of course, we've got to get back to 1 Corinthians and figure out what Paul was trying to say this was all about. <laughs>